Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. Uh, I am, with unwavering commitment to the cause of great conversation, your humble friend and host, Daniel Finneran. I'm joined today by the great, powerful, and extremely knowledgeable Marty Gallagher. Marty is the type of man to whose resume alone an entire episode could, and perhaps one day should, be devoted. For the sake of time, and so as not to strain your patience, good listener and friend, I'll provide you with its abridgment. Marty is an IPF, or International Powerlifting Federation champion, a USPF National Masters champion, a senior subject matter expert for the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, a coach of multiple champion IPF teams, author of five books and thousands of articles, longtime contributor to the Washington Post, reader, podcaster, philosopher, and as I recently discovered, lover, fellow lover of Russian literature. Marty, thank you so very much for agreeing to join me today. Well, thank you. Of course. So the nickname with which you've been christened, or perhaps crowned, is the Iron Monk. Mm. Now, in my mind, this name conjures up the striking image of a muscle-bound Martin Luther in sackcloth habit and balding, <laughs> tonsured head, yeah. hammering not feces to Wittenberg doors, but hammering out barbell squats and deadlifts in some obscure gym in the forests of Germany. So tell us, how does one come to possess the nickname the Iron Monk? And are you equal parts iron and monk, or are you more monkish than iron? Tell us. Well, I don't know where to begin. Uh, yeah, uh, you, you know, you don't give yourself nicknames. You, you, you know what I mean? Uh, that's that's someone else's analysis, right? But. Uh, I get to live the writer's lifestyle, which is, uh, as it turns out, perfect for uh, a recluse. You know, you uh, for the past 40, 40 years, 45 years, I've made my living by writing down whatever comes into my head about things that I care about. And then I send it off and they send me a check. It's, it's been fantastic and because of that i've been uh, uh free of uh, the nine to five you know my time is my own now i don't make a lot of money I never have made a lot of money but uh it's uh they had a cowboys have a saying the real cowboys they say it's uh they ask them about their lifestyle and they go it's uh it's not much of a living but it's a hell of a life All right and that that that's that's what we're that's what i'm i'm at me and, and my wife stacy excellent yeah no i i i've never heard that not much of a living and i'm writing it down and i apologize for that that uh, little pause not much of a living but a hell of a life yeah and it seems as uh this rogue, monkish, iron-clad uh, writer, you're really able to fulfill that 
that type of being. Uh, so just briefly, maybe you can tell us about your um, introduction to, to writing and to writing professionally. Now, I think most people who are familiar with you, uh, which there certainly is no shortage, know you because of your, your weightlifting expertise, your powerlifting instruction. Um, and the, the many thousands of people that you've trained, either remotely or, or in person. I come to you from a somewhat different perspective. I first was exposed to your writings, by which I was totally sh uh, impressed, I would say. And I want to talk about that and your writing style and your inspirations a little bit more. Um, but maybe you can tell us what drew you to writing initially and, and how you developed that that passion and that skill? Well, um, I was a born alpha, right? Some, some guys are single parent. My mother died when I was three. My brother was one. My father was a, you know, single Irish guy, um, hardworking, had been through the depression, born in 19, my father was born in 1917, uh, Irish immigrant parents, Avoca, Pennsylvania, you know, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, that it's a rough area, buddy. They really, they, they ripped the hell out of that landscape they turned it into a moonscape and then they left and uh, that's where my people are from and who's they part oh my my father would be my my uh my grandfather was a blacksmith who is killed uh died in 1918 in the influenza epidemic which mysteriously struck down the strongest members of the community it was an odd disease an odd pandemic so my grandmother raised my father, my uncle James, and my aunt Delia by herself. Her coal mining brother, uh, Jim Quinn, moved in with them to help, you know, pay the rent. They had a two-bedroom, one-bathroom home and a little postage stamp and, you know, pencil tucky. Uh, and they, that's what they, they were raised. And they came up through the Depression just in time to go to World War II. And, you know, my father went through all that. And he got scarred. He was in World War II. He was in the fourth wave at Normandy. He got messed up, never talked about it, right? I never heard him say, tell a single war story ever. Um, yeah, I also never heard him cuss. Uh, it was a different era. He wore a, a, a hat and a suit to work every day. I got a good damn education. <laughs> I was reading uh, uh, Gogol and uh, Hemingway and uh, who else? Trujenev in, uh, you know, middle, you know, uh, junior high school. Right. I got good education <laughs> i got held to account i plunked off my football team two years in a row 
as a, my both my junior and my senior year. I got E's in English and got E's in what else? No, got E's in uh, French and E's in math, language and math. I was an idiot. E E being a designation for excellent. <laughs> no, that's the worst you can get, brother. A is the best. E's I, for, e is you get two E's and you're off the team. Yeah, yeah. So oh, let me let me ask you. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned your father's taciturnity, his his you know unwillingness maybe to express himself and his uh, adventures abroad or the terrors that he witnessed abroad, and I think that reticence is common amongst people of his generation. I know um, my grandfather was maybe a little bit younger, but but still was was very reserved when it came to talking about his time in the service and, and what he saw, uh, what he experienced. I contrast that with your effusive style. I mean, you write prodigiously, like I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you have thousands of articles to your name. You have five books to your name. Uh, just recently, I was on your, your website, uh, Iron Company, and your raw column is, is extraordinary. I mean, you talk about things into which I want to delve from uh, ranging from the time you spent at your grandmother's humble little abode in Arkansas to, yeah. to the greatest weightlifters of all time, to your expertise in the areas of, of strength training and, and cardiovascular fitness and nutrition. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm the, that, I'm the uh, Forrest Gump of uh, my universe, I swear to God. Sure, so, but, but let me ask you maybe to, if you can, uh, explore that difference between your father's reticence and your uh, effusion, your, your way with words. Is there something uh, there? My, Am I reading too much into it? No, my father was an intellectual. He was uh, he was like he was like James Joyce. He he too uh, wanted to be a writer, but he didn't have that option. He had to he had to work. He was a government. He worked uh, in the government. He was a um, he was a smart guy. Uh, he worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and after he retired, he went to work for the Indians. Uh, but he was, uh, he was like a James Joyce Irish type, cold, un unemotional, not, not hard. We never were beaten. And I don't think I, he ever laid hands on us in our lives, but we didn't get a lot of hugs and kisses either. Trust me. We're, there's two types of Irish. There's either the super friendly, your best friend in the bar, by come on, let's have some more drinks and, you know, and laughing and crying. And then there's the unemotional Irish that, you know, there's like the uh, IRA bombers, you know, and, and that was my, was my, my father and his family. There was no hugging and kissing going on in that crew. Trust me. Mm -hmm. uh, they were hard. They came up hard, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, my father, his main job all through high school, he was expected to work and give the money back to the family. And his main job is a pin setter in a bowling alley you know like you know crazy he got academic scholarship that was his way out right then mm -hmm. came along he did the war and then after that you know he gets involved with my mother she gets leukemia 
dies. So he's got that to deal with. And, you know, it's, um, it hardens a, a person. Yeah. Uh, was that hardness then imparted to you or did you in your own life try to try to soften that approach and maybe, uh, okay. I got that part, the softer part, no, the harder part, the harder part uh, no, with, got... with the name iron monk, I would think he, <laughs> you inherited the harder part. No, you, you are that, mm. you know, that molds you. Mm -hmm. We were raised by wolves, man. I mean, it was, we were, we were wild right from the get go. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a different era. It was a different time. I was born in 1950. You know, that's like, that's ancient, ancient times. Uh, and, and my mother's side of the family was the exact opposite. They were, uh, uh, you know, down in uh, north, northeast Arkansas, in the, under the Missouri boot heel, you know, close to the Mississippi, you know, and, and they were like Delta country people. Mm. And, and they, were, they were interesting, too. They didn't drink. Now, my father's side of the family, they drank. They were hard drinkers. They 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 were serious drinkers. Uh, but my mother's side of the family, no, and they weren't teetotalers either. They weren't bap. They weren't hard shell Baptists. They just uh, they never took to it. And but that was a totally that was the complete opposite, right? Yeah. So it seems as though you straddled two different uh, worlds. worlds. Yeah, yeah. Between your 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 Pennsylvania upbringing and and mm -hmm. uh, that in Arkansas. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, you have this, this, this wonderful character in your life. Uh, you know, for me, she's a character, but for you, of course, she was someone to whom you were, you were very intimately related. And that's your, your grandma or your grandmother. Was her name Rutha? Yeah. Rutha Moore. Rutha Moore. In 96. Um, so uh, tell us about um, your experience with her going and and eating at her house and yeah, swinging yeah. on the, I mean, there's a beautiful, and I encourage all the listeners to check it out. There's a beautiful, beautifully written article about uh, these, these nostalgic, almost um, wistful memories that you have of your time spent at her house, her humble little house in Arkansas. Uh, and the way in which you describe the, the meals that you ate there. Let me just quote just very briefly. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you speak about Rutha shuffling with four perfectly cooked sunny side up eggs, deep orange yolks, along with crispy strips of thick bacon or assertive pork sausage patties. Yep. And you say this was just the first of three serious meals, always kicked off with ethereal biscuits and gravy, a bacon grease sieve sat on her tiny four burner porcelain propane stove to recycle the wonderful organic pork lipid and it, all of that just sounds so divine, <laughs> especially Whoa. to to a hungry young man uh, <laughs> such as yourself at that time. So, tell yeah. us a little bit about that experience, living or not, you know, living with Ruth, but spending time with her. Hardcore country living, where, where you know she had a, I don't know, what do they have? They had a a quarter acre, maybe a half acre plot. You know, it was butted up to the cotton field on one side and the the big woods to the back right and no one really wanted the property it wasn't of any value but you know they they were able to scratch out she was a continual gardener 
uh, canned, of course. Uh, she was also an expert seamstress, so she would barter sewing for usually pork, uh, raised chickens, duck, geese, turkey, right? Had that going, had the, the hen house going, uh, had, you know, outhouse until 1965, you know, that was a that was a relatively recent invention. I mean, it was country, country, hardcore. Uh, she didn't. She stayed at home and did sewing and and you know did the the farm work. Uh, her second husband, Will, he was the town barber. He was a, he was a good guy. He was he also was not a drinker, uh, which was a real problem down there. They had a lot of you know a lot of homemade booze floating around with a bunch of hillbilly guys who didn't have a really a lot to do. So, you know, you saw a lot of, you saw a good bit of that, right? Um, but that was, it was rural. Uh, and again, expert cooking, country, country cooking. When you read, I, I like, you know, when you read the great chefs like Jacques Pepin and he talks about his, the cooking that he got at his, uh, his mother's farm in France. And it's like, yeah, I know that, right. I know that, that vibe and that stuck with me. I, uh, I call it gourmet peasant food. Yeah. That a term I, I think that we could all, we could all adopt. It's interesting to me that, that, you know, this distinguished, this distinguished chef is one to whom you, you so closely resonate in that article uh, to which I, um, uh, made reference, you speak about his last meal, right? And and what he would want served to him. And it was the, the just the the simplicity of what was it? A, a roasted chicken, some potatoes, some carrots, and and you describe something very similar, uh, maybe a little bit countrified, <laughs> with a with a fried chicken uh, yeah. and biscuits and and this yeah. this gravy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, organic fried chicken that you you know the bird had her name day before yesterday right right and you describe how your grandmother would take the chicken in one okay. quick motion uh, born of long practice and experience wring its neck very quickly and almost seemingly painlessly for the chicken if that's even possible yeah. and and prepare it so so tell us a little bit about your history in food and nutrition uh, in this sort of simple but organic and very wholesome setting and how that has carried on with you and how that affects your preparation of food and your thoughts about nutrition today well until the 60s the mid 60s supermarkets were not all that common so before the advent of supermarkets food was local and organic seasonally appropriate right because they didn't have, you didn't have, uh, I think the first one in our area was A&P. You know, that was the first mega, uh, that was like Walmart to us, you know, a, a supermarket. Because before that, you would get, you get your, you know, your fruit from one place and your, you know, vegetables from another place. And you go to the butcher shop and you, you know what I mean? It was uh, smaller independent. And uh, also the, the the people in my life knew how to cook or some of them did and some of them really knew how to cook and yeah, i paid attention to that i was uh, i was covetous 
of those skills. And because I didn't have a mother, uh, I was kind of left to my own devices anyway. So I became very adept at, uh, man, I opened a lot of cans of Dinty Moore beef stew and I, uh, I boiled a lot of hot dogs, you know, as a, as a preteen, right. Feeding myself. Uh, and I enjoyed it. And, and uh, I could tell my, tell some tales, man, but, um, always a voracious eater. I was very much influenced by the muscle magazines. I was a, a tall skinny kid i had my full height by the time i was 12. i thought i was going to be seven feet tall right so at age 12 i was 120 pounds at 510 and i wanted to muscle up so you know we had um weightlifting was right in my neighborhood i grew up in a very hotbed of uh at the time it was olympic overhead lifting so i kind of lucked into geographically the area that i was raised in which is really suburban washington dc north of washington in maryland um and it was uh dc was a hot hotbed of, of olympic weightlifting and i fell in with some competitive guys at a very very early age i was competing successfully by age 14. And by age 17, I had won a national teenage championship. I was a national champion by age 17. And that, that changes a, a person. No, oh, it certainly does. I, I want to talk about your lifting career a little bit more uh, in due time. But uh, let's just linger for a moment longer on uh, this delicious term uh, of which I'll be making use, gourmet peasant food. Describe, if you could, the, the diet <laughs> of a of a gourmet peasant i love the sound of that so uh, you know of, of what is you know of, of what foods is this sort of diet composed we adhere to it to this day we to this day i live in rural pennsylvania i live at the foot of the catoctin mountains okay and we too get seasonally appropriate locally sourced organic proteins and produce and we go to the mennonite farms for vegetables and we go to the the you know the the butcher for our meats and we know what's coming in and what's good this week i'm picking up uh brisket pork belly and when i get through here i'm making some ribs uh my wife is a micro green grower stacy she's uh i married a wild ass irish woman she is a horse person she rides she has horses and she is a uh really into gardening like like micro like like uh, really potent stuff it's wild it's more like a science lab uh so we eat really good but we eat really simple and i'm pretty much i would say a keto plus fiber uh and i'm also an intermittent faster too so that's I think as you get older, you need, well, as you get older, you need to eat less. Uh, but that's an, another topic. So, but my point is that we still, everyone could, everyone wants to stress calories and are you keto, are you vegetarian, are you this, are you that? And our strategy is we point people back to let's let's concentrate on food quality.
right? Then talk about timing, you know, how much you eat, when you eat, uh, and it, it, it approach sensible nutrition from a different direction. We don't have to get hung up in, you know, micronutrients. Uh, you just have specific periodized goals in terms of your body weight, and you meet those goals. And uh, nutritionally, you do that based upon in taking quality ingredients. That's the first choice. And you do that at the expense of getting rid of the industrialized foods and the refined carbs. And, you know, it's a carbohydrate. We've known elite athletes have known for decades that that dietary fat was not the enemy we knew that because we needed the fat to recover if you really are crushing yourself in training you 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 don't recover eating l-i-t-e food and low fat and fat free and you know a lot of fruits and vegetables that you don't you don't recover eating that kind of food you got to have some 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 protein you got to have some fat you got to have some starch you got to have some real food in there because you're you're crushing your body and you will not recover but again elite athletes know that because that's how they become elite athletes and you've been yourself uh, an elite athlete for for quite some time I, I, so so I, I was a good lifter I, I was a world master's champion. I won six national master's title in three different weight classes. I was a teenage national champion in Olympic weightlifting, but I was never a great lifter. I was good enough to be given access to the great, great lifters. And I created some hall of fame lifters. I mentored under a world champion. I created world champions, but myself, I was a, I was not a god. I was a demigod. You know what I mean. I was not. Um, uh, I was not on that level. But I was. Well, that's a that's a stature for which I think anyone would settle. Demigod. Well, uh, <laughs> I'll I'll have to add that to your introductory there's notes. There's different levels, and I was never confused as to my my place. Yeah. In, well, yeah. In, you you seem to be very clear sighted. But but, but, but I, I was. But I but I mentioned your perhaps I wrongly. Okay, I was allowed access to those guys, and I was their chronicler. I see, I see. But so I, I, I mentioned your, in my opinion, elite stature or <laughs> slightly elite adjacent stature, in your opinion, um, as it pertains to uh, nutrition, because it seems to be the case that most athletes of your stature uh, and above were were not misled by let's say government prescriptions to uh, abhor meat and eschew it and and run away from it as far and as quickly as as you possibly could. So were you able when you know these these dietary standards were first released? Were you able to perhaps dissuade some people from adopting that style of eating? Because if you Look at the the charts, even till even to this day. Look at the food pyramids, um, of which our government entities are the authors. You know, you'll still see the the I think the you know, the largest portion at the bottom being your carbohydrates, right? And in a in a 
diminishing quantity. You'll have your fats and your proteins at the very top. And of course, now there's, a, there's an even more vehement push because of political reasons uh, and you know related to the climate and related to you know, other financial interests to diminish meat consumption and protein consumption uh, more you know more broadly so um i guess the question is you know were you able at that time to, to see through you know what the government was putting out and and maybe convince some others to to stay in your lane if you can call it that and and not be misled no actually i did everything in my power to convince my competitors to follow the governmental guidelines okay anybody who tells you that it's okay to eat nine to eleven servings a day of pasta please if you're competing against me, do it. No, I had no interest. I, I, I didn't. I'm not a public servant. I'm not interested in persuading John Q. Public. I never wrote for John Q. Public. I wrote about what the best of the best were doing to get better. And that's that's what's interesting. We I don't I'm not. Uh, the, the, the general public is too broad a term, too amorphous, too, I, I have no way of relating to them. Any motivated individual who comes to me, regardless of level, we're able to improve them, period. And it's not any magic on our part. We're just passing along the systems that we used uh, that were handed down to us. We've refined them. I have refined them over the, my 60 years. I've been in this game 61 years. So it's uh, it's it's been a long run, and I'm still I'm still doing it. I'm not retired, looking back, <clears throat> reminiscing. I'm still in the deal. I am still actively seeking to improve each week, each week, and I'm I'm doing it. We're leveraging gains at uh, advanced stages. Oh, absolutely. And I don't I don't want anyone to think, anyone watching or listening to think that you are in some sense retired and just simply imparting to me all of the wisdom that you've accumulated over these many decades. No, you're, as I think anyone can tell, um, you're, you're very prodigious in your output, not only of writing, but of, of work. And uh, I assume you're still training people uh, and, and achieving great, great things. All over the world, I'm training people. Now I've morphed into it's uh, one man what age retardation experiment right because now you know you now you're on the downside of your bell curve so the game the game becomes retaining that which you've already built right? so we would call that today or the the marketers would call that the the science of longevity right so is that something to which you uh, that that idea is that something to which you subscribe or is that just sort of a part of your incessant drive to improve well we do improve now we're not gonna i'm not gonna improve my bench press but what i what i what i can improve is my my current state of my physique uh the the gold ship now 
when, when you pass a certain age, so for some people it's 40, some people it's 50, whatever, uh, the, your goal shifts. You don't compare yourself to what you were five years, 10 years ago. You compare yourself to where you were last week. And that's what you improve upon. You improve upon what your numerical marks were the previous week. And you have numerical marks. That's the key. You, 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 in every, we have a, a whatever, there are a dozen categories that you can, we call it periodize. And we, it, if it can be reduced to numbers, it can be reverse engineered and you can eat the elephant one bite at a time, right? One week at a time, you know, you, and you push forward on a half a dozen fronts and these small cumulative steps yield this this incredible compound interest and if, if you can hold the course for 10 to 12 weeks you radically improve physically and uh, physiologically and psychologically yeah i feel as though this is uh, a mistake of which i'm often guilty is not being as objective you mentioned the words numerical engineering these are typically associated with things that are quantifiable exactly. uh, at 12 weeks so i think one of the issues with a lot of novice or even intermediate weightlifters or uh, exercisers or what have you is that they're not as objective with what they're doing they don't keep track systematically and strategically of what they're doing so i like i like to run i like to lift i like to do all sorts of things but Oftentimes, and after reading some of your articles, I, I realize this in myself, I'll go on my daily pre-work six-mile run, and I notice through the course of time, I'm, I'm not really pushing myself to, to run any faster, right? I know that I want to do this before my shift begins at work, so I, I just get through it in a certain amount of time. I know that will leave me enough time to shower and shave and to prepare myself for work, but what I need to do uh, and what you instruct all of your clients and everyone to do is to really become much more focused on goals that you'd like to achieve. Um, so that's something that I've taken away from, from, your, from your work and from all of your writing. Um, so how would you suggest that people who are unaccustomed to quantifying and objectifying their exercise routines, how would you suggest they begin to do this? Well, if you don't, every day is Groundhog Day, right? We, we what's the overarching goal? Why, why do we die? Why do we go join the Y? Why do we do boot camp? Why do we stop smoking cigarettes? Why do we, you know, well, I would suggest that really what we're looking for is a radical physical transformation. And people say, well, that's not really what I'm into. I want to, whatever, dunk a basketball or I want to be the club pro in tennis, whatever. Well, if you achieve the overarching goal, which is a physical transformation, no matter what 
the athletic endeavor you name is, you will do it better if you are more muscular and leaner. Name me any, anything. And the answer will be dramatically increase your lean muscle mass, dramatically decrease your body fat. Hmm. And I don't care if it's, uh, it doesn't matter. So if, if, if the big goal, if the center goal, if the irreducible nucleus is radical physical transformation, then we define that as dramatic increase in lean muscle mass, dramatic decrease in stored body fat. Okay. That's the definition. Then below that, it's, well, how do we achieve that? Well, we believe that there are four interrelated, interdependent, irreplaceable elements, four disciplines. You need a strength training element, you need a cardiovascular element, you need a nutritional element, and you need what we call brain train, which is the psychological aspects that are related to the to the process. So we get three of those four you can reduce to numeric. You can periodize strength training. You can periodize cardiovascular training. You can periodize nutrition. All right. Brain train is different, but brain train is how we enact the other three disciplines. So that's that. So we start with the lone overarching goal, radical physical transformation. We come below that. How do we define that? Again, more muscle, less fat. Then below that, we have the four disciplines for achieving that. And then below that, you have the sub categories within each of the four. For example, in, in cardio, you can either do the burst type cardio or you can do steady state. You need to make a determination, right? We also will stair step your degree of fitness upward over a, a 10 or 12 week cycle. We start you off easy and acclimatize you to this to the stresses. We pick super easy, we call them jump in, whether it's a poundage or a distance or a duration or frequency, we have very low jump in numbers, right? Very easy. You might start off, well, maybe you start off, if you're out of shape, three 15 minute cardio sessions a week at 60% of age related heart rate max. Walk around your block, right? 15 minutes. And then each week we would add two minutes to the duration, depending or, or more, depending on the on what we're dealing with. Every situation is different. Every situation needs to be customized. It is not one size fits all. The overarching, uh, the big check squares, whether we're training elite military or I'm training a completely out of shape normal person, the big check squares are the same. And again. We need a strength training element. We need a cardiovascular element. We need a nutritional game plan. And we need brain training. Now, the particulars in, within each of those four disciplines are going to be varied depending on the the situation of the individual we're dealing with. 
Yeah, and I can say that your writings inspired me this morning before our conversation to go on my you know normal six to seven mile run. And then I added in some of that, which was my steady state, and then add in a little bit of burst. So I did a few sprints um, knowing that you would perhaps applaud me for my efforts, though I'm quite out of <laughs> out of anaerobic shape. <laughs> I'll have to work my way back into it objectively, though, of course, and strategically based on some of your recommendations. Uh, we you talk about you know radical physical transformation, and yep. I know you're not addressing the public at large. Nope. But there does seem to be a, sort of a uh, a regnant mantra that is you're perfect the way you are. You've seen this radical change, if you want to call it that, away from the pursuit of fitness and wellness and health toward its opposite, embracing you know fatness or obesity, uh, be it morbid or <laughs> whatever else it might be. Uh, how do you think about this contrary movement, this contrary wind that seems to be gaining in uh, popularity? I don't. <laughs> I, I, I am not of your world. I can't be. I, I wake up. My anyway. Um, if 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 you want to be creative continually, I wake up with a finite amount of creative energy every day, and I refuse to fritter it away getting involved in superficialities that or generalities or discussions that lead nowhere and uh, I, I, I have so much serious work to do i wake up every day and i know exactly what i want to do and again my this is my, we've been up here, this is our 25th year here. So I've been in this pocket, this, this same groove for 31 years now. And it's, uh, I'm stingy with, with, with my creativity and I'm not gonna fritter it away looking at getting jacked up on sports or politics or, or or whatever or 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 you know how, how can we help the general public i can't help the general public i really i don't know but what i can do is i can i can just put out the methods that work i help anybody who comes to me i've never failed to get results for someone who's had the uh, they have to have they have to have the motivation and they have to have the situation. It's not enough to just want it. You you have to have the. It takes a little bit of financial wherewithal. And it takes a little bit of stability, and it takes a little bit of, you know. I know you really want to get badly in shape, but you're working seventy hours a week of overtime, and you're exhausted. And it's like I can't, you know. I can help you some, but you you, you know what I mean. Now, if they have a uh, a halfway decent life situation and they're motivated, uh, then you know we never miss. But it's just it's just biology. It's just cause and effect. It's just it's no genius on our part. It's just bringing 
science and, and, you know, between myself and my mentors, we got a hundred years of empirical experience under our belt now. So I want to return just briefly to that uh, statement by which I was startled. And it's, I'm not of your world. That sounds as though it's beyond simply uh, the iron monk. It sounds like you're entering the territory of an iron messiah. How no. are you, how are you able to, uh, how are you able to, um, isolate yourself from modern society and from the culture, the degraded culture, frankly, in which we're all to some extent living? Well, I bristle at that term Messiah because I am the furthest thing from a Messiah. I've had far more of a rock and roll lifestyle than a, than a messianic lifestyle. And um, we live good. We eat pork ribs and pork belly and on occasion we drink booze and you know we have a good country fun life it's not monkish it's not notified it's not you know uh pure oh my god no no we're, we're we're quite the opposite so not as austere as i was led to believe but we do uh it's the immersiveness, the immersive lifestyle. I, my ideal day is I, is I roll from one, immer, I call them immersive tasks to the next. And by immersive, I mean I, um, things that I get so into, I lose my sense of self. And it can be, I wake up and I do creative writing. And I usually burn out on that after about two and a half or three hours. So then I get up and I drink some more coffee and I go, if the weather is beautiful like today, I go run in the woods at dawn. Woo. Wow. I'm the first one through, man. I'm busting through cobwebs. I'm spooking deer and fox. Right. It's surreal. Uh, and I can either sprint or I can do steady state. And I mix it up. Also, I have very severe, uh, we call them billy goat trails. They go up the sides of these mountains and I, I hit those. So then I get burnt out on that. <clears throat> so then I'll go weight train. But I only weight train for about 15 minutes anymore. I might train three times a week for 15, maybe 20 minutes. But I can... I can kill myself in 15 minutes. I, I know, I mean, I am so expert now at you. Uh, what did I do in my last training session? I did five exercises, two sets a piece. And I mean, I, I crushed myself, you know, first set was a warm up, second set all out, give a hundred percent, have no more, not another rep in me, move on to the next exercise. Mm -hmm. And I'll do that three times a week, usually with my uh, three different areas of the body. Sometimes I'll do twice a week. I'll do like legs, one, and then upper body, the other. It depends. But it's, it's very, if you know what you're doing and you're of normal strength levels, which I am now, I don't have my monster strength anymore. So it's when you're when you're just normally strong, you can get through weight training very quickly because you only need two to three sets and uh, it becomes extremely efficient.
and again, if you know what you're doing, you retain and improve your strength. Improve your strength. Imagine that. Improve. And again, it's a combination of our particular... Everything in, in resistance training comes down to techniques and tactics. Techniques and tactics. Yep. Very good. Uh, I can't help but feel a little bit ambivalent about this idea of disengaging from society. Why? Well, it's great. I I acknowledge that, and to some extent, I do try and, to. And, but, and but let me let me just finish this I'm, thought. Mm -hmm. I, I am changing lives. You most I, certain you most you most certainly are. But this is where my ambivalence uh, arises. This is where my ambivalence arises, and again, I, meaning I I feel both strongly for disengaging from society and against it. When you have a remarkable person such as yourself, um, who's unique in so very many ways and uh, by whose example so many lives could be improved and, and are, um, that's the type of man, the type of figure that I want everyone to know about, that I want you know, our, our youngsters to model themselves after. Yes. So again, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to pedestalize you, but let's just use you as the example or anybody who's achieved great things in the world of fitness and creative writing and musical composition or whatever it might be. No, 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 no. There's a tendency, like no. I said, for people to, people of that status to retreat from society and perhaps they're skills aren't as widely recognized and the benefits that they could bequeath or give to the rest of society aren't as easily doled out. Um, so you can or cannot comment on that. It's up to you, but that's sort of how I feel about it. There is a compulsion that I, uh, with which I'm very sympathetic to exit society and, and kind of live that sort of life. Uh, I think it would be, uh, much more salubrious to the to the mental well-being and to the physical well-being as well. Um, but at the same time, it's almost as though the 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 age needs you or needs someone like you. And if it's calling upon you, how do you you know resist the the uh, the, the pull to come back and to help? God help us if we need me to help. Um, <laughs> uh, I tell you. Um, no, that would, I think, dilute what we're doing. I, I, I think, I think part of what myself and my wife are doing is dependent upon us staying in this tight pocket. I think we're the the Taoist cave monks, and I really don't think you want to bring a camera crew up here. I think it would ruin. I think we're discovering stuff i really do i feel like i'm on my, my own ongoing laboratory experiment and one of the uh one of the one of the master chiefs one of the bosses of the commandos that we worked with we were talking to a group of of tier one commandos and he was introducing me to the group and he said uh he said now so when it comes to your comments keep your comments to a minimum because gallagher has a finite capacity for human contact 
I was like, yeah, you know what? I, I think he's, I think that's correct. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad we're talking remotely then. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just saying that, 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 and I think that that's part of, of the fuel I run on. I think that if I, if we got public and I give back, I, for the past 15 years, every Sunday, I train a group of local people for free. And you ought to see these guys. They're all rocked out. And it's 100% natural. These are just, and, and most of these guys, they just train one time a week. They're getting dramatic, dramatic results. They're my ongoing lab experiment. Uh, it's my community give back. But also now it's been, oh God, like I said, 15 years. And to see the transformation on these guys, just and all they're really doing is strength training once a week. So that's another concept for which you're famous, and that is training once a week. Can you expand on that a little bit? To to most people who are even, uh, you know, like I said, novice or intermediate uh, gym goers, that sounds heretical. Mm -hmm. That sounds completely antithetical to what they've been taught. So, it's, how do you how do you explain training merely once a week? It is completely heretical and. Thank God they still don't burn people at the stakes. I would have been crispied up 40 years ago. Uh, well, here's what the strongest guys in the world discovered. In the, uh, quick, quickly, in the 70s, and up until the 1970s, I'd say, well, the late 60s, all weight trainers were under the illusion that in order to stimulate gains they had to train a muscle every 36 hours so you had to train your thighs train your biceps train every muscle in your body three times a week that takes a lot of time or you can compromise and barely train each body part if i've got to train biceps, triceps, forearms, deltoids, lats, erectors, abs, thighs, hamstrings, calves. That takes forever. And I'm just supposed to do that three times a week. So what they did, what the guys decided in the 60s is that, well, let's split that in half. So now we've got to train. So instead of training three times a week for an hour and a half, they train six times a week for 45 minutes. That's body building. Arnold Schwarzenegger, his peak was performing 700 sets a week. Can you imagine? 700. It's like, good Lord, man, get a job at a coal mine, get paid for that kind of labor, right? He no, was, no, he was paid. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was, you're right. Uh, double split, he would train uh, six days a week, twice a day. He'd have a morning session of about 40 to 45 minutes where he did his minor body parts, then he'd come back in the afternoon. Bodybuilding is different than strength training in that bodybuilding is about inflating a muscle. In the end, what they're looking to do is increase a muscle size. Any strength is purely accidental or coincidental. And you have a very pithy statement about that uh, of of bodybuilding. You say that when you are at your best, you're at your weakest. You are. And for strength training, when you are at your best, you're at yeah. your strongest. Just the yeah. opposite. 
that's what it's about. It's about peaking strength because it's, it's in conjunction with some sort of an athletic event. That's why we're peaking our strength. We're seeking to get stronger. And any muscle gain is purely coincidental, right? With now, when you're strength training. Now, do you look down somewhat contemptuously at the bodybuilders? You know, I, I liked your phrase up until you threw in the contemptuously, you know, that I got probably should. I'll rephrase it. Do you look down on bodybuilders? I don't know if I look down on them. I just think it's a, it's, let's say this, bodybuilding is divorced from performance. And ultimately they're training to look statuesque. And again, I, in my Forrest Gump life, I was the training editor for Muscle and Fitness Magazine for five years. I had 83 feature-length articles published in the largest selling magazine of its kind in the world. I sat in the front row of the Night of Champions. I sat in the front row of the Olympia. I sat in the front row of the Arnold Classic year after year. I mean... I was backstage. I saw these guys backstage. I, I know what's going on in that world. It's not like I'm a voyeur. My job was to interview the top bodybuilders in the world, the guys under weeder contract, about how they trained and how they ate. And that's what I did. I wrote articles on that. Uh, and my, my tenure almost exactly coincided with Dorian Yates's Olympia ring. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I I respected Dorian. I respect Ronnie Coleman, but you know, past that, it's um, a very strange, druggy uh, world. And again, because they're divorced from performance, it's one thing if you if you have to run a hundred yards or pick up five hundred pounds, but if you're if you don't have to do those things, and if you're paid to have the lowest possible body fat at a particular day and time. And if you're not monitored, there are some outrageous things that are done to the human body in order to get rid of that last vestiges of any kind of uh, liquid, any anything that would obscure muscular delineation. Sure, and I think those of us on the outside of that sport or that art, whatever you would call it, have very little appreciation for, for just how uh, radical some of the approaches can be and perhaps unhealthy uh, let me ask you though as a consequence of your long experience right. covering the sport and perhaps right. as a consequence of, of vanity right to which none of us is is immune uh, were you ever enticed by the sport of bodybuilding did you ever no. think about getting into it yourself and competing no not for a second not at all i was um I was the, I was the, the, well, I was known at, uh, around Weeder headquarters as the carefree psychotic. They loved my writing, but they knew to leave me alone. It was like, don't mess with him. I used to, all right, I'll tell a little story of myself. I would not show up for the night shows. There are two major parts in bodybuilding. There's the bodybuilding prejudging, which is when the actual 
placings are done. And those are done in the afternoon. And then the night show is when the bodybuilders come out and for whatever, 90 seconds, they pose to music. Right. Well, I would routinely skip out of that part and leave my seat vacant or give my seat away to somebody. And, um, but then I'd write up the best, the most incredible show reviews, you know, as if I were there, I would look at the prejudging and determine the placings and then just be able to place it together. And they, they love my writing style, but they, they didn't like me as an employee. Hmm. <laughs> the carefree psychotic. No, I suppose not. <laughs> you, you've accumulated quite a few nicknames. Some complimentary, some some less. Most of them we can't relate here. <laughs> oh, perhaps in some sort of a behind some sort of a paywall, you can you can divulge all the rest. <laughs> I, I think that from the bodybuilder, I think the one thing that we did take away from them is that they um, they they understood the necessity to um, incorporate cardio with nutrition with resistance training now in each case uh we change the content right we we didn't use their resistance training we did not use their approach to cardio we did not use their nutrition but they were the first to link the three together and give them credit for that and that's where that's where i got it from Hmm. So some lessons are to be are to be learned from from the bodybuilders, at least the bodybuilders of yesterday. Ah, uh, well, this was still the modern era of the the heavy the heavy users. This is when the all drug bodybuilding came into effect. I've got to change my location here, if you don't mind. That's of course, good. of course. So I'll ask you as you as you traipse about. Um, uh, what do you make of the the current? class of bodybuilders and you can comment I, on this I, just i don't follow it i haven't followed it since the day i left yeah since Not, the day i left uh weeder employee i haven't I, I don't i couldn't tell you who mr olympia is i have no yeah. idea yeah. it doesn't interest me in the slightest yeah neither uh, does it uh, it doesn't interest me either and and nor could i name uh, most and of again, the, it's, of the it's figures why, it's why do we want to be waste time with it's not connected to performance i'm not interested in teaching people how to uh enlarge a muscle for the sake of enlarging a muscle right mm -hmm. so anyway that's that's my own little little bitch on bodybuilding but again I, I i thank them for showing us hey if you just lift weights you can be tremendously out of shape, right? And if you just run and, you know, eat carbohydrates, you can be very susceptible to immune deficiencies and being run down and all kinds of ailments related to, to stress impact, repetitive motion. So we, we need to balance. Yeah, it's better a little bit of all four elements than a whole lot of any one or even two. So there is some acknowledgement of the, the the insights that we've been able to glean from the from the bodybuilding community. I want to pivot away from bodybuilding again. It's 
a sport and art in which I'm not terribly interested <laughs> and about which I know very little. Uh, I want to ask you about your fondness for Russian literature. I mentioned that just very briefly in my introduction. Now I know about this, this affection for Russian literature um, uh, from our correspondence by which this conversation was foreshadowed <laughs> uh, most memorably. So how is it that you came to become a lover of Russian literature, which is famously a rather difficult um, genre? Well, uh, again, I think I got a good education right from the start. And I read, we read um, Gogol, we read Terrace Bulba in, um, I think, seventh or eighth grade. That's an easy read. I think there's a misconception about a, a lot of Russian literature. People think that it's, it's complex, but <clears throat> compared to Faulkner or compared to, uh, God forbid, James Joyce, Russian literature is very easy read. Uh, I would avoid Pushkin. Um, he's kind of an untranslatable poet, a little bit like uh, Dante. You know, when you're trying to translate poetry, you got to get the rhyme and it doesn't really work all the time. So, yeah, no, but I was introduced to to push uh, to uh, Gobel early on, Terrace Bulba, great story. Uh, if, you're, if you're a young boy, I mean, it's all about fighting and betrayal and, you know, uh, sword, swords and stuff. And then um, who else? Oh, well, Turgenev with the Sportsman's Notebook. Uh, we got onto that. Uh, th that is a great introduction. I was introduced to hunting and fishing on my grandmother's side of the family. So I was quite familiar with that. So, so the sportsman's notebook resonated with me. I probably got a copy of that in 11th grade. I didn't read it. As it turns out, there was a lot of uh, politics involved because he was talking about the plight of the serfs, the slaves. In uh, 1800, I believe 74% of the Russian population was owned. Right. Uh, so 26% of the population owned the rest of the population. You know, you know, miserable. So, so the the underlying tone, all the sportsman's notebook stories concern serfs concern uh the you know the lower class but the 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 hunting stories themselves are great and ring very true uh so then you know once you get once you get into when i moved up here in uh, 1999 I, I worked my way through um harold bloom's the western canon and you know it that shortcuts a lot uh, I'd already got a good start. Pushkin, as a personality, he was incredible. He he kicked off the the. Really, I I concentrate on the 19th century stuff. So Pushkin started off. I think he was born in 1799. He's an incredible guy. So many of the Russian, the great Russian writers were of the elite. They were they hung out in the czar circles. Um amongst the elite, they spoke French. So the underclasses wouldn't understand what they were saying. That was their secret way of uh, avoiding the people who waited on them 
wouldn't would not know what they were talking about so that that was interesting so these these people were highly educated i'm talking about turgenev he was loaded tolstoy was loaded um uh, so was pushkin pushkin was of, of nobility uh gogol was not he was the second great great russian writer uh lermontov came along after pushkin it was interesting both pushkin and lermontov were killed in duels uh lermontov was killed early i think he was 26 or 27. pushkin i think made it to 38. uh both of them were killed over women and back in those days russians didn't get get into fistfights they shot it out you know they had formal duels so uh yeah both both uh, pushkin and lermontov were killed in duels gogol uh he was a great great writer he wrote terrace bulb he wrote dead souls which was uh kind of considered the first great russian novel then uh turgenev i didn't like his novels as much i wasn't too much into the novel stuff but as a short story writer he was he was great hmm. um, so, so one author who's gone unmentioned is dostoevsky well so, so i know i know you're working chronologically but yeah um he was most decidedly not of the elite and no. uh, <laughs> had and it's perhaps not. perhaps is uh, maybe in my opinion uh, the greatest among all of these writers that you've named do you think that perhaps is the reason for his greatness, the fact that he was not an elite and probably suffered more yeah. um, you know, that, under, the, under the thumb of, the, let's say, the government yeah. uh, than any of the others. Do you know his story? You know, he got, um, his, father, his father was a surgeon in some god-awful small nowhere place, right? Uh, he, uh, at age, I think, 25, he went to a meeting, and at the meeting, some people stood up and spoke out against the czar, so he was arrested, and he was, him and uh, six other guys, they were arrested and sentenced to death, so they locked him up. So, on the day of their execution, they marched him out, and they tied the first three guys up to the poles and the guard commander said ready aim fire and the muskets went off oh we were just blanks the czar commuted the sentence but of the three guys one of them one of them went crazy for the rest of his life the second guy his hair turned instantly white and the third guy pissed himself and fainted Dostoevsky was in the next line so after that they sent him to siberia for five years then he got out that's really when he started writing wow so he ended up as an epileptic he had a huge gambling habit and his favorite game was roulette which is like the worst game for gambling right so he constantly had to write in order to just pay the bills right his brother died so he had to take in his brother's family his wife and their kids uh there was something wrong with his wife i mean this guy was born under a bad sign what did he die i think he died at age 60. he made money at the end of his life he got recognition and broke through at the end of his life uh, i loved uh, crime and punishment uh, this is my favorite 
Russian novel, right? Uh, I thought that was solid all the way through. Harold Bloom said about Dostoevsky, he said, um, incredible beginnings, un unparalleled middles, and usually disappointing endings, which I kind of thought was was accurate. He did some good short stories, too. If you read, like, The Gambler, uh, you know, he did some good stuff. Uh, now after or, or perhaps Notes from Underground, a novella, which is excellent and perhaps one of my favorite works. And, and I probably would agree with, with Bloom's assessment, as most people would, though, though Bloom is himself a very idiosyncratic critic and writer in his own right. He can be a little bit difficult and, and um, um, troubling for some people. But overall, I think I think we we would endorse his his assessment. Let me ask you, being so well and deeply and widely read in the works of Dostoevsky, uh, with which of his characters do you think you most resonate? Oh, the the police inspector in in uh, Crime and Punishment. For what reasons? Oh, he's great. He's he. He had him pegged right from the beginning, and he's so subtle, and he's so... There was an excellent version of it done on television, and the police inspector was played by, oh, uh, what's the guy's name? Ben King's is excellent. Just played it perfect. I think, they, I think they used it word for word. There was very, there was very little improvisation. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Hmm. Hmm. I would choose... Uh, the nameless character from Notes from Underground, I think, uh, you know, who, who oh, suffers. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I see what you're saying. Yeah, from any. Uh, yeah. Yep. No, I, I say it was a police inspector. Yeah, yeah. That's an excellent choice. An excellent choice. And among the Russian greats, would you say that Dostoevsky is your favorite or would you rank someone above uh, him, in your own personal opinion, not in a, any sort of you know, literary critical opinion. Well, Tolstoy was very interesting. He was born in 1826. He was aristocrat, but he went in the army. He saw action at Sevastopol. Uh, he was an artillery officer. Um, he was uh, he was a swung back and forth. Um, he was really conflicted over the whole surf thing. He owned he owned slaves. But uh, he was really, really conflicted about it. And um, at age 60, he got, uh, no, age 50, he got religion. And he became a, a shrew and a scold. And he, he really kind of dried up. I, I thought at his best, he was good. I was not as big a war and a peace fan, but I really liked the Cossacks. Uh, Harold Bloom said his favorite short story was Haji Murad, which is a good short story. Uh, I like the Cossacks best, um, but he was Tolstoy was a strong writer. He was he was the real deal. And then Anton Chekhov came after him. Chekhov was born in 1860. He was a grandson of a slave. Chekhov was my favorite short story writer, but he wrote over 700. You could always find something. In Chekhov, he never wrote a novel. He he wrote plays. You know, he wrote the the Three Sisters, the Cherry Orchard, all that. Cherry Orchard, yeah. Never he never wrote a novel. 
Yeah. Yeah, prodigious output of of short stories and plays, but unfortunately no novel. But you know, that was the 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 genre in, in which he thrived and for which he's so highly regarded to this day. Uh, my upon informing my father that I'd be speaking with you and, and that you had this peculiar interest in in Russian literature, which I would think is somewhat uncommon in the powerlifting community, he he responded that maybe it wasn't so unusual in the in that there is a maybe a strong link between the, the culture of Russia and its weightlifting and you know Bulgaria and some of the eastern or formerly eastern bloc states and and um, and America. Is there anything to that, uh, or or is my my father incorrect? My mentor was uh, in powerlifting was a, a fellow named Hugh Cassidy, and. Uh, Hugh was the first world powerlifting champion, and that was in 1971. He raw squatted 800, bench pressed 570, again, no third, two second pause, and deadlifted 800. Uh, Hugh was a Renaissance man. He was one of America's top metal sculpturalists as an artist. He was an excellent bass player. He played terrific acoustic guitar. He played cello. He spoke fluent German. His wife was a, was German. Uh, Hugh mentored me in my writing career. He and I wrote my first articles together in 1978. He co-authored articles and got me published in 78. Those were my very first articles. Um, if anybody is of a mind, YouTube up Eva Cassidy, E-V-A Cassidy, that's Hugh's daughter. Uh, she has sold 10 million records to date. She died at age 33. It's a tragic story, but uh, she used to practice upstairs while we lifted downstairs. Um, so yeah, uh, he was a bi uh, he was a, a botanist. He used to grab you know pear branches on apple trees, and um, you know he'd read Nietzsche in the original German. I mean this this was. Uh, an exceptional guy. He, he taught um, mentally challenged children. That was his profession. I mean, you know, yeah. And again, on, on the side, he won world championship and, uh, you know, completely radically transformed his, his physique and the strategies that he provided me are the strategies that we still use today. We pared them down a little bit. So is he the type of Renaissance man after whom you wanted to mold yourself? Yeah. Yeah, we all have man mentors. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what a fine one that you had. Um, uh, I'm sorry, what were you saying? I said, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm sure you had interesting conversations about uh, Dostoevsky and, and Nietzsche and, and they're two. Uh, opposing moral worldviews. Do you want to comment on that a little bit? <laughs> with 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 you? Yeah. Were you ever uh, you know engaged uh, in any sort of conversations? I can imagine that they would be fruitful, uh, and probably in an age before uh, microphones and recordings, uh, worthy of of memorialization. Yeah. At the same time, I was uh, mentoring under Hugh Cassidy. I also was studying under Robert Smith, who was the foremost. Tai Chi 
Bagua and Ching Yi teacher in America. He was the first guy to introduce Tai Chi to America. He was a CIA agent who had been stationed in Formosa, Taiwan. He learned all the Chinese internal martial arts, brought them back. He was stationed in Langley, and he lived in Bethesda, Maryland, and he taught a free Tai Chi class every morning, Saturday, every Saturday morning at the Bethesda YMCA. So I would take Tai Chi lessons from him on Saturday morning. Then I'd go to Prochotsky's studio and take Bagua and Xingyi lessons every Thursday from him at the same time every Sunday I'd, and Sunday and Wednesday I would train with Cassidy. So I was training with the hardest of the hard with Cassidy and the softest of the soft with Robert Smith. And it was interesting. Both guys spoke to each other through me. There's a lot of similarities. They, uh, a lot of interest in root, R-O-O-T in Tai Chi. And then uh, Cassidy would want to know, well, just where exactly do they keep their weight in this Tai Chi thing, you know, stuff like that. And, was, and it was, yeah, was your pursuit of that balance between softness and hardness deliberate or was it just a, the consequence of your curiosity and wanting to try different things? Uh, well, both were available and why, you know, why not? Right. Like I said, they were both in my neighborhood. Wow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very fortunate that they were. And how about, how about martial arts? Did you ever in, involve yourself in any sort of martial arts? I know jujitsu today is extremely popular. I'm seeing are fighting arts. There's a, there are three kinds martial arts. Bagua and Xingyi. Bagua is a circular fighting form and Xingyi is a straight linear fighting form. So yes. And do you still practice do you still practice these arts? I do. They're not really good at fighting arts. I, I'll use the particularly the Xing more of a cardio drill because you you do repeat katas and it's a great way to jack your heart rate up and you do something athletic and you, you become involved in it. Uh, I don't want things where I'm mentally able to multitask. Uh, I, I, I don't want to ride a stationary bike while I'm texting and thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner. I want something that requires me to be completely immersed in whatever it is I'm doing. Yeah, and that goes back to your emphasis on immersive tasks your mindfulness. Tell me a little bit more about that. Have you um, always had this mindfulness? This is something in which I'm very interested. Um, of course, I, I have my side project, which is devoted to meditation, mindfulness, sleeping, and becoming more present in the moment, um, uh, to which I'll have to send you a link. Uh, but a lot of for a lot of people, that takes a lot of guidance and a lot of practice to be able to adopt a mindful uh, way of living. For some people, I think it comes quite naturally. To me, I think it comes a little more naturally, although it's something on which I can always improve. So is it is it more inborn for you? It seems to be. Is it more intuitive or is it something, mindfulness, is it something that you've had to accustom yourself to and to, to train yourself for? Involved in what you would call mindfulness very, very early, like in 1964, because we we were using Soviet auto-suggestion technique to improve our weightlifting. 
this this whole idea of auto suggestion, which is very simple. It's you run a movie over and over in your head about your performance in the gym. So if you if you're looking to clean and jerk, whatever, two hundred and seventy pounds. You know, you, you and you're driving over to the gym in your car. You're running the movie over and over in your head, over and over in your head. You're viewing yourself, and the more, the more detailed, the more perfect you can make that vision, the more ingrained it becomes. And what the Soviets discovered is that by this, this mental ingraining would actually improve reaction time, improve technique, and definitely improve focus. And it would give your mind something to do instead of having monkey mind, right? Where you're just jumping all over the place and because, you know, thinking about this and thinking about that. No, think about your damn lifting. Thinking about, think about your top set. Think about your big effort and run that movie over and over in your head. And you get down to things like, what color are the stripes in your socks? Uh, are your, you know, are, are your socks pulled all the way up? Uh, you, you know, just, you know, uh, what what is um, your training partner Marshall have on? You, you know, and you get into these details because we did it for years. So then, in 1970, I got involved in formal meditation because all of a sudden, Eastern meditation started coming to the United States. Before then, it was pretty rare. You didn't, but in the 70, early 70s, that's really when the New Age kind of thing began. You started having health food bookstores and, and places where you could get books. I've got a meditation collection now that it'll blow your mind. It's like, I don't know, 300 books. And what has been the most powerful technique? Well, that's, that's not the right question see, because it's an amalgamation. Again, I didn't go into meditation seeking enlightenment i went into meditation looking for improved sport performance did you now, find enlightenment along the way yeah uh uh again anybody who seeks enlightenment never finds it the best you can hope for is long periods of mental quietude and mental focus there's no permanent enlightenment there's just you are at at peace and centered and your forever chattering mind is is quiet of its own it's not some some willpower thing uh no your mind falls quiet on its own and you become immersed in what you do that's the best you can hope for but that's enough hmm. now are you able to instruct others in, into this this uh, mindfulness technique because you mentioned among your pillars of of fitness one was the the psychological component or the mental component don't, so don't, if you don't you don't progress at level that's one of the that's that's one of the uh, that's what separates the the men from the boys is that you've got to have that ability that that mind ability you have to be able to will yourself to lift more than you're capable of and not everybody is able to do that and that requires that requires a total synchronization of mind and body because hmm. you you need to lift more than you're capable of right hmm. just five percent effort right right, right. and right. learns 
Yeah. And I can imagine uh, a lot of sort of burly, tough-minded weightlifters, both past and present, being somewhat resistant to this idea of, of sitting down and collecting one's breath and, and uh, observing one's thoughts in this monkey mind. But it seems as though you're unique in this regard as well, always being able to yeah, adopt a, a variety of different techniques that might otherwise be kind of a little unusual to, to, the, to the sportsman. Well, in the end, it's an emotional, at, at, at the very end, it's nitrous oxide. It's not quietude and, and, and bliss. Like when you're turning into 800 pound barbell, uh you got to get your berserker mindset now now do you have a meditative technique that's distinct from that which is employed during your lifting for instance when you wake up early and you uh, let's say finish that run through the forest with the fox and the and the deer do you take off your shoes and stand and ground and think for or not think for a certain amount of time or or do you sit there and and have a mantra tell us what do you do if anything at all all right, let me make sure I understand. Are you talking about before lift or before I run in the woods? What? What I mean to say is through the course of the day, whether it's uh, during an exercise activity or or not, maybe before bed or or upon waking up. Is there any distinct meditation practice that you perform daily? Activity is my meditation. So when I get up, I have my cup of coffee, and I look forward to my to my creative writing session and i always leave the previous day with knowing what i want to pick up on the next day so when i wake up i know exactly what i'm going to do and i'm fired up i drink my coffee and i and i do that and i have probably two two and a half maybe three hours and at that point my creativity i develop what i call concentration fatigue then I know, get up, have another cup of coffee, go hit the woods. The woods is my meditative experience. You have to concentrate when you're running. If you're running through the woods, you have to continually focus your eyes in the trail ahead of you because you have trip hazards. You've got roots, you've got divots, you've got loose stones. So this, this requires focus and attention. At the same time, you have to have what we call soft eye see what's going on around you've got the smells that are intoxicating i listen to music i have some sort of incredible music playing and it's surreal and i am so blessed and i'm out there and i'll do that for 30 to 45 minutes some days i might just sprint i might do five to eight sprints i have a wooded uh wood chip track that's like running on a trampoline some days i'll do that other days i'll do the longer kind of sightseeing I have a gigantic hill i can do hill work depends and i can be spontaneous about it i don't have to be structured about it i just know i'm going to hit the woods i'm going to do 30 or 40 minutes of something that fires me up in that instant always feel better when i'm done usually then i go to the ymca which is less than half a mile away and i'll or to to my gym and i'll lift weights for 15 to 20 minutes okay there, I got to get my sight on. I got to get fired up for the for the top. I don't get fired up in the warm ups, but on the top set of each exercise, 
I got to bring it psychologically, mentally. Okay. Uh, once that's done, I calm back down. Usually at that point, I'll go take a, a intense steam bath, like lobster, and I'll, I'll alternate that with cold shower. I'll end up in a final steam bath where I'm just ready, like my skin is ready to peel off. Then I'll walk out and I'll get in the Olympic pool. And I'll do, I don't know, 10 laps, maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And at the end, I just do like flotation tank. I'll come out. Then I'll get in the sauna. Okay? Sit there, get into a zen headspace like you can't believe. I'm ready to melt. Then I get my car, drive home, drink a protein shake, and fall into a nap, a power nap. I feel myself growing when I'm sleeping, right? Then I wake up, have a cup of coffee. Then I do my, my rewriting. I do my creative writing in the morning. I do my rewriting in the afternoon. Good writings in the rewriting. Then after that, at three o'clock I eat. That's when I start my meal. I love to cook. Uh, I consider cooking as a very immersive task. Also, I play piano. So I'll play piano at some point. Usually I alternate that in my writing. If I get uh, wound up in my writing, I'll turn around and do some, some keyboard to kind of unwind my head. If you play, writing is like building a brick wall and improvisational Piano playing is the opposite. One is one is left-handed, right brain. The other is right brain, left-handed. And between the two of them, you can extend. I extend my creative writing if I interpose it with a little bit of music, right? Huh. Huh. Unwanted. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. I was going to ask you to outline in some detail your, your morning routine or your daily routine. And, and thank you for, for doing so. I love movies. I watch movie at night. And it's so great because there's so much stuff on. I watch a series. I like, you know, I like, I like to watch movies. I like to watch like justified and series and stuff like that. I find that it's passive. I don't do many, you know, it's a passive thing. I can do at night. And then I usually fall asleep. I usually go to bed at eight and read from eight to nine. That's when I usually read my, my classical literature. That's a good time. Fall asleep, boom, get up, do it yeah, again. Yeah, do it again. It, it's astonishing to me to know that you spend almost all your time in these immersive, mindful, meditative states. Yes, contrast, very... contrast that to the rest of society. I mean, I know to whom you're not <laughs> very favorably um, connected or very strongly connected. But the, the masses, especially of Westerners and Americans specifically, they might be lucky if they spend five minutes a week in this immersive state, one minute a week. Uh, maybe they're never in these immersive states, and and to me, that's it's a devastating recognition. Uh, it, it it it's not good for the, the mental well-being of our society, um, and I, I don't think you're you're going to flourish as a human being if you don't have the ability to will yourself into this mindful state 
or to be brought there by the guidance of some guru or or, or instructor or, or teacher of some sort. Uh, so let me just ask you, for the, the masses out there watching on this and or at other channels, how would you how would you suggest people begin entering, if not staying in these immersive states? What are some simple things that can be done? Um, strength train, I think, might be the easiest way to... If strength training handled correctly uh, unleashes what I call a hormonal tsunami and there has to be a certain intensity level, but most civilian people don't experience. They don't push to a point where you, they have in, endorphins, serotonin, dopamine, uh, you know, adrenaline to kick the process off, and noradrenaline. These hormones that really intense resistance trainers experience on a predictable basis. We call it the post-workout glow. You know, they, they call it the runner's high, but let me tell you, the runner's high is so ex elusive. I mean, you've really got to know what you're doing. I, I can create what they call the runner's high within one set of weight training. I don't have to get, I don't have to run for 15 or 20 or 30 minutes to get into the state. I can get into it very quickly. And it's in relation to how close you come to your 100% maximum. Now they're discovering, they're discovering these, these uh, biotransmitters that are released in proportion to the intensity of your exercise that are supposed to be like miracle growth of the brain. Uh, BDN, uh, just like nitrous oxide that created in, relation, in response to exertion. And it's not 80%, or it's not 75%, or it's not 90%, it's 100 or 102%. And you have to learn how to exert maximally safely. And the way that we do it is we use full and complete range of motion, very controlled rep speed. Uh, again, our strategy in strength training is to make lightweights heavy. And, and we do that with a degree of precision and control. And this keeps the athlete safe. If you stay within the prescribed motor pathways, you'll stay safe. And yet you can still exert to the level required to get this incredible hormonal release, which is also the signifier of hypertrophy. Right? So strength training is how you build a muscle. In order to reduce the body fat, you've got to get control of your insulin. If there's, here's, a, here's a real inconvenient nutritional fact. If there's insulin in the bloodstream, there can be no fat burning. If you wake up and you start your day with a big glass of orange juice and a bagel, and then you decide to do a, an hour cardio session, you just did it for nothing. And you're an advocate of fasted cardio. Uh, I'm an I'm I'm advocate of, of getting the, the insulin spiking foods out of your system and, and, and doing some sort of 
aerobic exercise when you when you don't have a, a insulin in your body. Otherwise, you can get fitter, but you're not going to get leaner. You can improve your cardiovascular innards, your lungs, your heart, your, your cardiovascular system, but you're not going to mobilize and oxidize stored body fat. You can't. Body's got to be devoid of insulin. Then you give it a task, and then the body will burn its second favorite fuel source, which is stored body fat. Yeah, we love fasted cardio. That's great. Yeah, that's what I do as well. So th that was an excellent response and uh, an erudite one. To get to the to to my question, the response to my question is, you know, how does one who's not really inclined to to mindfulness and to these immersive activities, how does he or she sort of establish that practice? It's by strength training, essentially, and building on top of that, you know, the nutritional components and everything that's that's related to it. But but really mindful strength training in in the proper manner with objective goals yes and this is the key point I, I'm, I meant to make this point when you achieve that hormonal tsunami what I've discovered is that actually an advanced meditational state look at the characteristics of both when you achieve that true you just knocked a pissing vinegar out of yourself in a in a hardcore weight training session and you're sitting there and you are centered you're attentive you have a lack of conscious thought and you're like not thinking about well, what the redskins are going to do or anything you're just sitting there in like this this beatific glow state and it's you just feel complete and full and it's just like fantastic right and it's a direct result of this, these hormones that have been unleashed in your system. However, as a, uh, well, since 70, but a 50 year meditator, I can tell you that it takes a lot of work to get to that state of, of being where you're sitting in Zazen with your hands in the cosmic mudra, with your spine erect in the lotus position, the tailbone elevated, doing the, the diaphragmic breathing, doing the box breathing, you find yourself in that state. Oh, what are the characteristics of the state? Oh, I feel centered. I feel contented, right? Oh, that's like that glow state you got lifting. Oh, that which you've been seeking, you already had. Boom. Yeah, I think people would um, pay, pay, they would pay great deals of money, I think, uh, <laughs> to be able to attain these states into which you so easily slide, or, or maybe out of which you never actually come. You seem to be <laughs> perennially in them, which is extraordinary. And I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of our listeners can can take from you some lessons and be able to, to incorporate them in, in their own lives, because it is not that difficult. The barrier to entry into these mindful states isn't that high. It's not insuperable. You know, like you said, mind, you know, mindful strength training, running on a train. And I think this is brilliant. Uh, running on a train that's somewhat unpredictable and challenging up a hill or where there are roots um, jumping out and, and uh, daring you <laughs> uh, and, and wanting to trip you. 
those are the sorts of areas that you want to be and, and where your mind really can connect with your body and make what is what can be perceived as a difficult process, sitting down and uh, saying a mantra and, and centering yourself, uh, makes it much easier, makes it much, much easier. Your concluding thoughts on, on mindfulness and immersion. Anything else to say about that? I get immersed in cooking, cutting, slicing, timing. Uh, what else? Music for sure, right? Um, I don't. I don't play written music anymore. That's too much like what I, my writing. I play improvisational, set up some sort of left-hand figure and just, you know, it's got to be uh, improvisational. I don't, I don't want um, more typing. Right. Yeah. We're, yeah. We're, we're, you know, so uh, what else? Now, are, are any recordings of your music available? That I'm not, it's not for gain. It's, I just want it to go off into the air. Right. Uh, what else? In the woods, anything outside, walk your neighborhood, put on some music, right? But pump, you know, put some ass into it, right? Get, 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 get it moving, right? Um, it could be a ship in a bottle. It could be, you know, whatever your, whatever your passion is, car mechanic, right? You get lost and, you know, you're, you're, you're rebuilding the engine, right? I mean, whatever. Those are the tasks that, that we want to repeat. Playing pool, some guys get completely immersed into that. But to ro the, to me, the best life is just to be able to roll from one to the other and then be done, right? Yeah, it, it sounds, it's an extraordinary uh, practice. Gotta, yeah. I'm sorry? Got to make a living. Yeah, yeah, that too. Now, unfortunately, the modern man, uh, about whom you write <laughs> to some extent, is completely divorced from this this immersive uh, practice, right? With the cell phones specifically being the cause as to why they are so distracted and unable to immerse. My fear is that with the long-term use of these devices, you know, uh, regaining that almost intuitive ability to become immersed in uh, activities will, will, be, will be so weakened that they won't be able to. I hope that that's not the case, but uh, I'm fearful for the future. <laughs> Based on based on what we're seeing, I read an excellent book on that. By I think his name is Ron Goldman, and he talked about the fact that the average teen gets or receives I don't know something like 120 requests for interaction a day. So if you do the math and divide that into the waking hours, it's like every 15 minutes there's some sort of interaction required, which is the end of the long contemplative thought needed for works of art, yeah. for writing, for sculpting, for, you know, composing. It's, it's for that reason, and this, there's something paradoxical about this, but it's for that reason that I think my generation and the generations that follow will be the least artistically productive in any real meaningful way. I think that there's just completely, um, that there's inadequate time devoted to idleness, to, well, not idleness, but to boredom, to those hours or those minutes during which the mind can, can, can be at ease and to think and to create and to conceive. And, and uh, works of genius that we saw in the past, I think will be absolutely foreign to this age because of these devices and because of their inability to, to become mindful. 
Um, so that's that's my great fear. I hope it does not happen. I hope that with the abundance of information that these devices provide us with, just the opposite will happen, right? That's the paradox because there's never been an age, there's never been a time in which so much information has been so immediately available to us. But we have, right, we have an inability to truly and deeply engage with that material and to make from it something even greater. So that's that's my paradox of the of the modern age. I hope, like I said, that we're able to combat it and overcome it and and, and be a remarkable generation uh, on which you know, posterity will look back approvingly. But uh, I have I have uh, I have fears that that won't be the case. So we're getting toward the the end of our conversation. You've been very very generous with your time, but I didn't want to to depart without learning a little bit about your your engagement with the military. So tell us, how did you begin uh, with the armed services? And was what, what was your approach uh, to, to uh, enhancing their physical prowess? Uh, I was approached by uh, tier one active duty operators. This was 15 years ago. And what they wanted for me is they understood the need for strength, wanted to improve their strength, but their, their dilemma was they had no time. They had so many skill sets that they had to stay abreast of, you know, uh, jumping out of planes, underwater, submersibles, what else? Hand-to-hand uh, -hand fighting, ground fighting, stand-up fighting, weapons, you know, pistols, rifles, knives, all the stuff they've got. To, then they have to stay in touch with these different skills. It's not like uh, an athlete gets to be a specialist. Whereas in the military, they have to be a generalist. And they're like, wow, we, we need strength. But we, we can't be in the gym five days a week. It's not real. And I said, well, we have a, you know, a, a dramatically reduced strength training program. And again, it's this idea of training once a week, which we touched on. That goes back to the champion lifters of the 1980s who discovered that in order to, to maximally increase their squats, their bench presses, their deadlifts, they could only lift once a week. They couldn't recover. If, if they tried to squat and deadlift twice a week, well, the squat and deadlift will use a lot of the same muscles. They use upper thighs, they use erectors, they use abs. A lot of the same muscles are used in both lifts. If you're training each lift twice a week, those muscles are getting blasted four times a week. When do they recover? Never. Now, when you're an Olympic weightlifter handling 225 pounds, that's not as much of a problem as it is when you're a powerlifter handling 600. Right. So that was the difference there. So guys like Cassidy cut the training from the three times a week down to twice a week. Now, the generation that followed, my generation, we cut from twice a week to once a week. So we would squat once a week. We would deadlift once a week. We'd bench press once a week. Now, we wouldn't do multiple sets either. We didn't do five sets of five, three sets of eight. We didn't do any of that. We worked up to a top set. You made your number. You moved on to the next week. And everything was about your one time at bat. 
So this was the period periodized strategy that created all the other strategies. Our, our cardiovascular strategy is built on the same idea. We stair step up the degree of fitness over the 12 weeks. You start off at a base level and over time, gradually, 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 just increase the duration, increase the intensity or increase the frequency. Goose one of the goose one of the elements, right? Uh, nutrition, what's your goal? Are you underweight and looking to add muscle? Well, that dictates a certain nutritional strategy. Are you overweight and looking to shed body fat? Well, that dictates a different nutritional strategy. We need to synchronize that nutritional strategy with our weight training and our cardiovascular. We do nutritional the key to body weight and body percentile manipulation is the combination of cardiovascular exercise and insulin-free eating. That's how you lose body fat. You, you combine cardio, like you talked about, your fasting cardio. Um, combine that with uh, periods, long periods where you don't have insulin in your bloodstream, and that's how you get leaned out. Um, if you want to gain quality body weight, you take in your, you supercompensate, you add calories, but you take in the additional calories with good quality foods, not junk food, not pizza and pie. Right. Now, were, were the entrenched military leaders, let's say, very welcoming to all these ideas? Because I can imagine that they have a certain dietary protocol to which they want all their soldiers to adhere. And they probably themselves have a a memory of how they used to approach fitness that might not be consistent with what you're putting forth. So did you face any any pushback or resistance? We were brought in by the operators, not by management. So we had a leg up because the guy said, we want these, we want these guys in. I would take in a team of uh, four to five coaches for a week at a time. We'd work with the guys Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, two four-hour sessions uh, just on strength. I'd you know, bring in Kirk Karwaski and Brad. I'd bring in the world champions, uh, and we'd really run it down and say, this is how you get stronger with the minimum amount of time. We had these guys down to being able to train once a week. Squat, bench, dead. They have time. Do some overhead pressing. Now, when they deployed, they had all the time in the world. So then we would allow, we would accordion, we'd expand the volume, you know, to, to fit, you know, they're like, we're bored. We want to train more. Great. No problem. We can, we, we can expand on this ultra basic one time. I train a group of local folks as kind of a community give back in my neighborhood. I have for the past 15 years, they gather on Sunday morning from nine to 11 we train one time a week and that's all the training they do and these guys are all highly competitive power lifters and all of them are rocked out and strong as hell and we strength train one time a week that's it squat bench deadlift overhead press if they have time left over they do some arms that's it go live your life yeah would you say that you prioritize your your sessions in that way you said squat Squat, deadlift, bench press, overhead press. Uh, your the the hierarchy of importance. Would you say it was descends in that order? We have what we call the core four, 
which are those four compound multi-joint movements. If we were to add a fifth, it would be the power clean. We like to do some arm work, but mainly we squat, we bench, we deadlift, we overhead press. Now in a pinch, we'll just squat and bench. And again, this is absolute strength. There are three separate and distinct types of strength. You have absolute strength, which is your heavy power lift, short distances, maximum payloads, no regard for velocity. Then you have explosive strength, which is longer range of motion, maximum emphasis on velocity, you moderate the payload. Then you have sustained strength. You have light payloads, but long duration. Now we pay homage to all three of those strength types. But in the absolute strength world, just squat, bed, overhead press, boom. And the regimen that you introduced to the military, is that still in use to this day? Or have yeah. they diverted to a, to a different technique or program? We're still in con uh, continual contact. Very good. That's encouraging, <laughs> especially with the, you know, perhaps some of the uh, uninspiring things that have happened in, in our military uh, and to our military in the past few years. So I'm glad to know that they're still being trained at the at the very high level that you introduced um, so long ago and uh, to which they still adhere. So Marty, uh, I think this is a, a good place on which we can we can come to our conclusion. You've been extremely generous with your time, with your knowledge, um, with the with the breadth of information that you're able to provide on a diversity of themes. Uh, I think I was most struck by the, the voice of the writer whom I read <laughs> for the past few days in preparation for these conversations and the voice of the man to whom I'm now able to speak. Uh, to me, that's very interesting because you you're able to convey your passion and in a, a very intimate way, both through the written word and through the spoken word. And I think that's a very, very unique ability. Um, so I encourage everybody to purchase your books, of which there are at least five. Uh, read your articles. The, they may be dated, but go back and read them because I spent, like I said, the, the past few days on your Iron Company website reading your raw column in. My goodness, I had to open up a fresh Google document just to um, <laughs> just to store all the information that I was learning. And I consider myself to be somewhat experienced in the world of fitness, but but every article that I opened, um, of which you were the author, had something new for me. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes below, and I will highly, warmly encourage everybody to visit it. Uh, and and also to listen into some of your podcasts with uh, with your colleagues over there at Iron Company. Tell me, is there uh, being the Iron Monk? I suppose there aren't <laughs> uh, very many social media platforms on which you can be accessed or followed. But is there is there somewhere people can go to check in on your information or to maybe uh, contract with you for a training seminar or something like that? Uh, we're at functionalstrength.org, and that's our, our website. Where we have, and there's a good collection of videos uh, demonstrating the, the, the core lifts that we do. We, we use five variations in each of our core four lifts. My main book is called The Purposeful Primitive, 
And that's a 450-page sort of a, the grand treaty, the overview of the four interpendent, the philosophy that we we touched on today. So that would be the main book. And if you if you uh, touch base, we also do personal training. I work with motivated people all over the world. I have clients in India and Japan and Austria and where else and Netherlands, South America, all over the U.S. So if you, if people are interested in working with me, um, they can get in touch with me at mvso1 at comcast.net. So again, we're those that are motivated and have this way, we're always try to accommodate. Yeah, and they no doubt will be filling your inbox with requests. Uh, I can assure you of that. Uh, so before we come to our final conclusion, do you have any parting thoughts, parting words, anything with which you'd like to leave us? Thank you for providing the format to talk about things other than sets and reps and you, you, you know what I mean? It was refreshing and I appreciated that you've done your homework. And uh, again, anytime you want to have me back, we can we can drill down on on some aspects. You know, the psychological stuff is if that's a gold mine. I think that that's an area that that uh, it's also very easily applicable to other to other pursuits. Right? Doesn't necessarily have to be strength training, but that that's that's where we learned it from, and that's where we cut our our psychological bounds. Precisely. I think that it's grossly unexplored and it's perhaps the most important, I don't want to call it the most important contribution that you're, you've made or are making, but I think it's one that will really be fruitful for a lot of people in a variety of fields. And you could tell in this conversation, yeah, I, I'm I'm less interested in sets and reps and the numbers and the the great power lifters and their names and what they you know if they wore a belt or not, their knees were wrapped. Those are things you know. As a layperson, yeah, I don't know much about that, but but talking about that psychological component, I think is just so rich. And you are such a, a unique practitioner, uh, not only of, of of writing, of training, but of of living. And it's it's very unique to hear somebody. Um, with with so a unique a perspective and approach to life. So so I thank you um, a thousand times for for joining me on this humble little channel, uh, to which I encourage everybody listening and watching to subscribe. Uh, it'll also be available as a podcast, so you can stream it on any of the podcast streaming services. The one that you like best, you can simply search Finnerin's Wake and listen to us if you don't want to see our two irish mugs <laughs> on these uh, on these cameras of ours so with that i bid you all farewell from finner and zwick <laughs>